0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, I chat with three different guests Sarah Witt, Anthony Gare, and Krista Mayshore. I first talk with Sarah and Anthony about how they got started in real estate investing as a couple during the pandemic and how they're able to compete in the competitive market of Houston as new investors. Sarah is a mechanical engineer, and Anthony studied communications and played football at the University of Iowa. After talking with Sarah and Anthony, I chat with Krista about her journey as an entrepreneur and how she has managed to rank in the top 1% of all realtors in the US for 20 years, selling over 2,200 homes to date. She averages 100 homes a year and has taken her new business from zero to $10 million in just 35 short months using digital online strategies. A big concern on the minds of most aspiring investors is if now is the perfect time to start real estate investing being that we are currently in a global pandemic. During this interview, we went into detail about how the pandemic became the catalyst to start Sarah and Anthony's journey into real estate investing. Anthony and Sarah shared the story on their first property, how that process went, as well as their worst deal and how it made an impact on their strategy with their portfolio moving forward. They also gave insight on their long-term goals as a couple in real estate and tips on how to get started in real estate investing in a competitive market. Krista shares what things to consider before deciding to become a real estate agent, her definition of success, the most common misconceptions and mistakes of new real estate agents, why agents are not leveraging the power of digital marketing and social media in their businesses, how disruptive technologies and systems are impacting the real estate market, and hacks and tips for realtors to speed up their success. We usually only have one guest here on the show with the occasional two-guest episode, but it's rare, and this might even be a first, that we have three guests in one episode. So without further delay, let's dive into this week's three guest episode with Sarah Witz, Anthony Gehr, and Krista Mayshore.
2: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I am your host, Robert Leonard. And as I mentioned in the intro, today's show will have three guests. And the first two I'll be chatting with are Sarah Witts and Anthony Gare. Welcome to the show, guys.
3: Thanks for having us. Really
1: appreciate it. Tell us a bit about yourselves. How'd you get to where you are today? So
0: I am a mechanical engineer by trade. That's what I studied in college. And he did communications in college and played football at the University of Iowa. We met my fifth year of college in Austin and we kind of hit it off and he had this itch to start getting investing in real estate. And it took us a couple of years to be comfortable. We've learned enough. When COVID hit, we decided just to jump in. It was the perfect time. We were working from home. The weekends, we weren't really going out or doing anything. So we're just like, this is the time for us to jump in and get started.
1: What made you interested in real estate, Anthony?
3: So I had a couple of mentors, even back in Iowa, that were trying to get me to buy my first property. Now, the timing just wasn't right. And so, I met a couple more mentors along the way, and they buy a lot here in Houston. I have mentors in Dallas. And so like Sarah mentioned, we just wanted to make sure that we felt comfortable writing the numbers. We wanted to become experts on how to find deals. And so it took kind of all of that to, to get us to dive in. And so COVID was just the perfect opportunity for us to do so.
1: When you were back in Iowa, did they want you to buy your deal while you were in college? Yeah. <laughs> how did they expect that to happen?
3: So I think it was a condo or a townhome that I was personally living in. It was probably like 80,000 bucks. So the out-of-pocket cost probably wasn't going to be that expensive. So I probably could have saved up for it, but I didn't really want to be investing in Iowa City. So
1: You both have mentioned, Sarah, you mentioned it first, Anthony, you mentioned it after, but you both have said COVID became the perfect time to invest. And I've been getting reached out to by a ton of people saying, is now the right time to invest? It's COVID. We're in a global pandemic." And here you guys are saying, it's the perfect time. This is when we decided to dive all in. And that seems a little backwards to probably a lot of people. Explain that a little bit to me. Why was COVID the perfect time to get started?
0: So we were getting married. We were supposed to get married July 4th of 2020. And so I was like really overwhelmed with trying to plan the wedding. And I was like, after the wedding, we can start investing. And then COVID hit and we had to postpone the wedding a year. And I was like, on the weekends, we're not doing anything because we can't go out. Working from home. So when we have breaks or at lunchtime or whatever we can be doing real estate. And at nighttime, again, we're not going out. We're not doing anything. All of our usual like activities that we would have after work kind of were canceled. So it's like, we can either sit here and twiddle our thumbs for however long. And no one knew it was going to be a year. But we were like, now's the perfect time because there's nothing else that we would be doing. We can sit here and watch Netflix and do some silly things where we really can take advantage of the time we have and start to really build our team and get going.
1: So it sounds like it was the perfect time in terms of... Your availability and your just overall work schedules. What about from a market perspective? Were you not worried about a global pandemic going on and buying your first deals during that?
3: No, <laughs> not really. Honestly, I mean, for us, it was all about like I mentioned. We wanted to make sure that we knew how to run the numbers, and so if we could find a deal right where the cash out of pocket wasn't too high, we felt comfortable doing it. And so the first deal that we found it was five, six, seven thousand dollars out of pocket. The ARV on the house was like 145. So it wasn't too expensive. So, you know, we just felt comfortable moving forward. And I don't even know if we thought about the fact that we're in a pandemic and the market crashing. It was just like, this is a perfect time to get in. If it does crash, eventually it's gonna go back up. So that's kind of what we were thinking as we kind of got started.
1: How long had you guys been considering investing in real estate before you actually got started?
0: So he had been listening to podcasts probably for like a year and a half to two years, and I just like the numbers didn't make sense to me. I was like, people are putting all this money into real estate, and you're making like a hundred or two hundred dollars a month per door. So this is a lot of money to not make a lot of returns. Just like I didn't get it. And finally, when I read the Burr book and understood the strategy behind Burr and then learned how to run the numbers, I was like, oh my god, the returns are incredible here. And not only are you making money from appreciation, sort of similar to the stock market, but you're you're making cash flow, depreciation, tax write-offs. There's so many benefits to real estate that you don't get with other investment vehicles.
1: I love that you mentioned that because people that don't invest in real estate, they say that to me all the time because they know I invest in real estate. And a lot of times somebody will hear, I have to put $10,000 into a deal and I'll get $200 a month. That's nothing. This is not worth it. And then I explained to them, I said, yeah, 200 a month, maybe that's not a ton of money, but over a year, that's 2,400. Now twenty four hundred on a ten thousand dollar investment—that's twenty four percent a year. I mean, that is a great investment. I don't know where you're going to get that elsewhere consistently, with all the other benefits that you mentioned, Sarah. And it's perpetual, right? I mean, as long as you own the property, so it's not like it's going to end. And it's cash flow. I love the stock market too, so I'm not talking down on it. But you don't get the cash flow from the stock market. That's really only real estate.
0: And then you have to pay capital gains and the tax, or in the stock market.
1: Exactly. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something that a lot of people talk about. Anthony, you mentioned the ARV. So typically that's around flips. Was your first property a flip or was it a buy?
3: It was a buy. So the way we did it was obviously we utilize hard money, so they land on the after repair value, which is the ARV. So that's why I mentioned that it wasn't too high. It was at one forty five. We paid at ninety three for it. We put fifteen thousand in renovation. So we only had to come out of pocket the closing costs. So not a bad first deal.
1: What made you guys comfortable to do a burr as your first deal ever?
0: We wanted rental properties. So the goal is to have as much cash flow as possible. And the reasons that we would ever do a flip or to do a wholesale would be to get more money in order to buy more rental properties. So the goal is always just to do rental properties. Now we're, we're phasing into flips and wholesales so we can have more cash to buy more properties. And burr was the best way to buy rental properties because you're creating equity as opposed to
3: Putting money in and buying equity, I guess. Yeah. And to add, we just didn't see the value of buying like turnkey rentals, just because realistically, you're not going to find a turnkey at $100,000. Most turnkeys will probably be like 150 to 200. So putting 20% down on that, it's not really that feasible because at scale, you could probably buy one or two or three, but to buy 10, you know what I mean? It's just not as scalable as the BRRRR strategy.
1: Were you guys not concerned with the increased risk that could come with the renovations, especially for your first one? A lot of people, they're going through their first property. They're already worried about everything else that comes with buying a property that has nothing to do with renovations. And then you add in the complications of renovations and the risk that that entails. Were you not worried about that additional layer of risk?
0: Not really. So when we got the house, we had a 10-day option period. So during the option period, we had an inspector come out. So we made sure that everything was actually going to be fixed. We had three or four contractors come out and we got three or four different bids. We went with the guy that we felt the most trustworthy, someone that we wanted to work with, had the best relationship with him. We sent him the inspection report, made sure everything was covered in his bid. And then during the renovations, I mean, we paid based on the work that was completed. So if the work wasn't completed, I wasn't just going to give them the money because they said they needed it. That's how we control the price and everything. And if he said we need to add something, well, if something needs to be added, then something else needs to be taken away because our budget's 15000 And we can't go over that. Otherwise, this deal won't work. We've been in other flips and stuff before where something popped up mid-renovation and we had to cut something out. I really wanted to have an island in one of our houses, but we need that $1,000 to go fix a pipe or something. So we had to cut that. So there's ways around it in order to, to minimize the
1: risk. As this was your very first deal, you didn't have experience to really rely on or lean on. How'd you get a hard money lender to work with you guys?
3: networking. We spent a lot of time building relationships, getting referrals. And it just so happened that I want to say on this one, the hard money lender that we were working with was actually a new guy kind of at that company. So he was looking to build his business too. And both of us have really good jobs. We have money saved up. So it wasn't as risky as maybe somebody that didn't have a job or didn't have as much savings. And so they were willing to take the risk with us.
1: Is that how you guys have been funding your deals? Is that through just your own savings from working W-2 jobs?
3: Yeah, but most of it's uh, hard money. And then we also utilize gap funders as well.
1: So what did that first deal look like? Was it a single family house, multifamily? And walk us through from beginning to end what it looked like and what was the end result?
0: Sure. So it was a single family property. It was listed on the MLS, which is a multiple listing service. So it was listed online by a realtor. And it was listed at like $140,000. And the ARV after pair value is 145. So we're like, this isn't going to work. So we offered them like 90,000 and they said no. And there was a lot of back and forth probably for two or three months. And finally they agreed to 93,000 after it had sat on the market for 120 something days. So we got it for 93. It appraised after it was all fixed up for 145. So the hard money lender gave us 75% of the ARV. So they gave us like 108,750. So that covered the purchase price of 93, and then it covered the $15,000 rehab. And then I think $750 left over that went towards closing costs. And then we paid the remainder of the closing costs. So we came out of pocket, I think like five or 6000 on that deal. So then we moved into the renovations and that came out to be $15,000. Everything was itemized in the bid. So we knew exactly how much everything was going to cost. And then after about a week out from the end of the renovations, we started the refinance process. So we refinanced into a 30-year conventional loan at 80% yeah. at eighty percent of the ARV. We didn't have to come out of pocket again for the refinance closing costs.
1: When you went into the renovations, was there items that just had to be done? You didn't really have a choice, you just had to fix them? Or was it relatively move-in ready and you just chose to update certain things to increase the value?
0: So the house had really good bones and all of the big ticket items like the roof, foundation, HVAC collection, all that sort of stuff was already fixed. So it was really, it was a cosmetic rehab, but it really needed cosmetic renovation because I mean the carpets were blue, the walls were literally like fabric wallpaper with all this floral stuff on it. We had a green kitchen. So it had to be fixed. Technically, somebody could live there. Yes.
1: And what was the end result? How much did you end up renting it for?
0: It rents for 1250 a month.
1: And what is your current mortgage on that?
0: 980.
1: So cash flow almost $300 a month without reserves. Yeah. And then you said you put like 5000 into it. That's a really good cash on cash return if you look at it that way.
0: It's somewhere between 30 and 50, I can't do the math in my head.
1: A little over 50. And so where did you guys go from there? What was your second deal?
0: We moved into another rental that we found on the MLS.
1: Was that one moving ready? Was it a burr?
3: Pretty similar to the first one. We actually utilized the burr strategy on that one. It didn't have blue carpet, (laughs) but it needed just a little bit of love, right? So we redid the flooring, painted, knocked down a couple of walls. So the purchase price on that one was one ten, I believe. And the ARV came back at one eighty. And we did a twenty two thousand dollar rehab on that one. So I think the out of pocket on that one probably was like seven or eight. So a little bit more than the first one but the returns still work because we charge, how much is rent on that one? Like 1500 or $1,400? 1400 I think. So it just basically repeated the process. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like chat GPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon? And millions of other queries right at your fingertips. Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
1: All right, back to the show. When you guys are looking for deals to buy, what are some of the must haves that you guys are looking for in properties?
0: So, our first property was a 2 1. I probably wouldn't do that again. That area is really hot and it really didn't matter, but I'd probably look for a little bit bigger of a house. We don't want to go above an ARV of like 200 because the rent ends up being um, too expensive and then you're kind of limiting the amount of people who can rent the house. Um, area is critical for us. So, We want to make sure the street view is nice that someone would actually want to live there, and it's a good area of Houston. And since we're in Houston, one of the biggest things we look at is the flood zones, right? So, did this house flood during Harvey? That's just not something we would want to have in a rental. Maybe in a flip if houses are selling quickly over there, but that's definitely one of the biggest things we look at is the flood zones.
1: I know Houston's a really busy and some would consider expensive market. So, how are you competing in such a competitive market as new investors? A lot of new investors think if they're new, it's impossible to compete. So, how are you guys doing it in one of the biggest markets in the US and arguably competitive?
3: I mean, I would say we're trying to go direct to seller. So, we've had luck essentially wholesaling to ourselves or finding off market deals ourselves. But we put a lot of time in focusing on the MLS as well. So, she got a real estate license during COVID just so that we can kind of cut out the middleman, if you will, so that she can see all the new listings, she can submit the offers. And so, a few times we've gotten lucky just because we've just been fast. If a deal hits the market, we can analyze it in two minutes and we can submit an offer in five. And so if the seller is really motivated and they're just looking for the first offer to come in or the best offer to come in, we've seen some luck that way. So for any new investors, I'd say just try to focus on finding a mentor, working to maybe try to find some off-market deals and, and partnering with a realtor that can move extremely fast.
1: How are you finding the stuff that's off-market? I understand you know, having your license obviously helps with the MLS. You get to see it first, but with off-market stuff, I mean, there's no real benefit per se to having your license and they're not on the MLS, of course. So how are you guys getting into those off-market properties?
3: So we drive for dollars physically like in the car and virtually either on Google Maps or Redfin. And then obviously skip tracing the owner and calling the owner and making an offer that way. We also door knock on the weekends. We haven't done that the last couple of weekends because we get married in about 15 or 16 days. So we haven't had much time to do that. But that's been the two strategies that have worked the best for us.
1: We talked about some of the must-haves for you guys for your properties. What are the deal breakers? What is something that you see when you're looking at a property and you're just like, it doesn't matter how good the numbers are. We don't want to touch this property.
3: I'd probably say the area. Like if it's a bad area and we don't think people would want to rent it. That'd be one thing. But other than that, I mean, if there's foundation issues, that's fine. If the roof is caved in, that's fine. I mean, because everything is fixable, right? So it's really just dependent on the location.
0: Days on market too. So when we're running our numbers, we always look at the rentals. So if, we're, if it's a rental property, if we're doing the birth strategy on it, if the rentals are renting out in like 100 days or like 120 or even 80, at that point, it's like, I don't, it's too risky for us because it might sit there and it might not rent for what we want it to. But that's really the only thing. If it's a flip, we look at the houses, how long are they taking to sell? If they're taking four or five months, that's not worth it. So that's the biggest thing that I think we look at in addition to the area.
1: When it comes to new investors, should they be focusing on one strategy or should they be more optimistic and just work on whatever comes their way? Whether it be flipping, wholesaling, rentals, burr. how do you guys manage working across multiple strategies?
0: So when we started, we were very set on burr and that's all we're doing. And because of that, we lost out on a lot of really good deals. There was one deal where we left like $50,000 on the table, which was really frustrating. So then after we kind of had that loss, we decided we're not backing out of deals anymore. If it doesn't work for us as a rental, maybe it'll work as a flip. And if it doesn't work for us as a flip, this deal will work for somebody. And that's when we really started to kick off our wholesaling part of our business because I mean, the deals will work for somebody.
3: And to add to that, I mean, I think when you're first getting started, you kind of have to pick maybe one or two strategies because you may have enough capital to do a rental, but to do a flip, the lender will only lend you 70% if it's a flip versus the 75 So that can make a big difference. And so I think if you can identify maybe one or two strategies getting started, that would help just because you don't want to spread yourself too thin as you're trying to fund your first or second deal.
1: When you mentioned that you missed out on about $50,000, is that because you passed up on a flip that you felt could have made a profit of $50,000 or is it something else?
0: So we had this deal under contract and we had under contract at like one fifty, dollars And we thought that the ARV was like $300,000. The lender we were working with at the time, they gave us like a value check or something. And he said that the value was only two fifty. dollars but we had another lender that we found down the line that said, yeah, it was probably 300. And the house actually ended up selling for 300,000. After we backed out of the deal, some big time wholesaler in Houston got a hold of the deal and they wholesaled it for $200,000, which was $50,000 higher than what we had it for. So we could have probably wholesaled it to somebody because it was a great property. We could have wholesaled it for 200. And I think it ended up selling for...
3: It was like 298 and
1: something. What we
0: thought it was going to sell for. So our ARV really wasn't that off.
1: I don't know if that's really a deal, but would you consider that your worst deal to date? And if not, what would be your worst deal to date?
0: That's probably the worst deal. We looked at it and I was just like, dang. Because there's deals we've gotten now that if we have it under contract it won't work for us, we'll try to wholesale it. And I just wish we knew what we knew now when we had that deal.
1: It doesn't have to be the best in terms of numbers, but what has been your favorite real estate deal that you've done?
3: Probably a flip where we partnered with a couple of my buddies from college. I think the price on it was like 150 or 160. And then we flipped it for like 265, I believe. Mm -hmm. It was just a fun deal. It was one of our first flips. We kind of tore down walls. We redid the kitchen. So we did like a $45,000 rehab on that one. So not like extremely big, but one of the bigger ones that we've done when we did it at the time. So I would definitely say that probably was my favorite deal. And it sold in a day. So (laughs) that was fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Selling in a day is always fun. That's for sure. What is your guys' long-term goal with real estate? Do you guys aspire to have thousands of units or do you have a different metric that you're targeting?
3: Yeah. So long-term, like I said, we get married about 16 something days now. And after that, we really want to focus on multifamily and then also scale our wholesaling business. But yeah, we want to have thousands and thousands of units.
1: (laughs) Multifamily? Yeah.
0: I can't have a thousand single family houses. absolutely not. (laughs)
1: Sarah had mentioned that you spent a year and a half, two years listening to podcasts. Do you think during that time, you would say you had paralysis by analysis? Do you think you were stuck in this phase that a lot of new investors have? I
3: don't think so because during that time, I was like transitioning from Iowa, then I had moved to Austin for a year and a half, and I wasn't really at a stable spot. And so once I made the move to Houston where Sarah moved, I felt like, okay, we're home now. Bought our first house, we were kind of comfortable where we were. And so, as I was kind of transitioning through cities and all that other stuff, I was kind of learning as I went on. So, that's kind of my take. I don't think that I was afraid to jump in. I just felt like the timing needed to be a little bit better.
1: How have you gotten educated, Sarah? Have you gotten onto the podcast bandwagon? Are you more into books or do you just kind of learn from doing it?
0: So, at first, it was a lot of podcasts. I think the podcast sort of sometimes can be overwhelming just because there's so much information out there. It's like, which podcast should I listen to? And that's kind of, it's like, okay, well, do I do wholesaling? Do I do flips? Do I do bird? Do I do turnkey? And like, unless you figure out what you really want to focus on, it's hard to figure out which podcast to listen to. And then at that point, I really started to read some books and focus. Books are very focused. So you can pick a book and it's on one strategy and you can read from cover to cover and you kind of have a better understanding. But really just jumping in and doing it. I mean, once you jump in and do it, there's things that books just can't teach you. Some of the biggest things are like managing relationships. How do you want to follow up with people? How do you communicate with people? And so that for us is, that's been some of the hardest part.
1: When you look back on the books you've read, podcasts you've listened to, mentors you've worked with, what's a piece of advice or information that you've learned that you received that still impacts you to this day and you guys still rely on in your business?
0: Cheapest probably isn't always the best. One of the deals we did with the least expensive rehab bid we got, the house is one of the biggest headaches we have because things are just always breaking. And I could have gone with a contractor that we might not have gotten as much or it might not be as nice on the outside, but at least it wouldn't have been breaking in it. we wouldn't have to keep paying for those things. That's one of the biggest things I think we've learned along the way.
3: You make money on a deal when you buy it. And that just kind of challenges us to find really good deals at really good pricing and not stretch our numbers, right? Like if we try to like, well, we can cut this or whoa, we can do this, it's probably not that good of a deal. So really trying to hone in on finding the best deals that we possibly can to kind of help scale our business.
1: For someone that's new or aspires to be a successful real estate investor and they have their own real estate goals, what's the best piece of advice that you can give them?
0: follow up. You're going to be told no a million times from the same person, just keep following up with them. And that's how we've gotten multiple of our deals. We just keep calling and bothering the realtor or bothering the seller because the deal is not going to work for anyone at the number that they're looking for. And if you're the person who keeps following up, you stay top of mind and then people are going to stop following up and you're going to still be there and you're going to be the only offer that's left.
3: And I would say maybe find a mentor that's in your city or that is investing in real estate just because you always want to have somebody you can ask the question to or verify or just kind of give you that piece of advice that helped you make the decision or back away from a property that you may not have all the answers to.
1: I want to start adding this last question, a little fun question to the end of the show. If you could both meet anyone in the world that could have been dead, live, anybody, who would you guys meet with and why?
0: Robert Kiyosaki or Grant Cardone? I think Robert Kiyosaki's story is incredible, but just love to get his perspective a little bit more, just like one on one. And Grant Cardone, I mean, he's a man. Like, I aspire to be like him. So if I could just talk to him, see what he's doing. Mark Cuban's the other way. Mark Cuban and Grant Cardone are just like very inspiring. They started from nothing. They built this empire. And just to get five minutes of their time to just get a piece of advice from them would be huge.
1: Thank you guys both so much for joining me on the show today. For those listening that are interested in learning more about your guys' journey, you guys personally and just might want to connect with you, where's the best place for them to go?
0: Probably our Instagram page. So it's Gair G-A-I-R dot real estate. And that's probably the best way to talk to us. Just DMS.
1: I'll put a link to your guys' Instagram in the bio of the show below. So if anybody's interested in connecting with you, they can check it out there. Guys, thanks so much for joining me.
3: Yes, sir. Thanks. Thank thanks you. for
1: having us. All right. So that is all for my conversation with Sarah Wits and Anthony Gair. Now, we're going to get into my conversation with Krista Mayshore. Krista, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today.
2: I have been in real estate for 20 years. I used to be a third grade teacher prior to getting into real estate, and I've pretty much been in the top 1% every year, except for one. I've sold about just over 2,200 homes in my career, and now I actually coach real estate agents across the country.
1: Are you still selling homes today, or have you transitioned fully to coach?
2: Last year, I only sold 90 homes, which for me is like really low. Like Usually, I do 150, 160. In fact, the year that I left coaching full-time, I sold 154 homes. So typically, I do more. But I sold 90 homes last year working five hours a month in my business in real estate. I'm like the creator and the script person. And that's what I do. And then my team runs my processes and my systems for me. So uh, yeah, I'm still selling, but just not really as involved in it as I used to be.
1: So was the reduction in the selling more so to focus on other parts of your business rather than maybe the market or real estate itself doing something?
2: Yeah. That's because I coach like 99% of the time. So I have a multi-million dollar coaching business now. Just in the past 60 days, we've taken on 110 new students, coaching clients. So I coach like 99% of the time I'm coaching and training and and that kind of thing. That's where my focus is now. So because of that, my brother, he's got more work-life balance than I had when I was in real estate. And so he's not as driven as I am to sell as much. And so he's happy making the kind of money he has with the 90 limit. Had I been doing real estate full-time, I absolutely would have sold more for sure, but (laughs) I'm
4: coaching still.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
4: and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination? Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. NetSuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi.
1: All right, back to the show. I've heard from a lot of people that they're not sure if they want to become a real estate agent or not. What things should someone consider when they're trying to decide if they want to go into being a real estate agent full-time as a career? What are the most important things to know or even just think about?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think everyone goes into real estate thinking it's just going to be so easy and so fun. And you got to work. I mean, I will tell you, like, I didn't work weekends or nights, but that's because I have a very unique competitive marketing advantage. I do a lot of social media and digital marketing. And so people would wait for me and they'd kind of adapt their schedule so I didn't have to work weekends and nights, but that's really kind of rare. You really need to make sure that you have a really good support system in real estate because the average agent only sells like two, three homes a year, according to the National Association of Realtors. And I think it's very common that 97% of agents do 3%. Of the business, and 3% of the agents do 97% of the business. And I think it's going to be even more like that as the market starts to change. So you got to be prepared to work really hard to be as innovative as possible to adjust and change. There is so much competition. You are absolutely in bloody waters in real estate. Like everyone you know is a real estate agent. So, therefore, it's not just looking at houses all day long and all that. Like, it's really a lot of work. People are very demanding. They want you every weekend, they want you every night when they want something because that's their most important valued asset, right? It's their home, especially when it's a really competitive market like right now. So it's very competitive, as you can see right now with no inventory. So right now, even more so than ever, it's like as competitive as you can imagine. So it's really difficult to get listings or to get offers accepted.
1: When we look at those data points that say you know, 3% of the agents are selling 97% of the homes, do you think some of that is watered down by people that have their license but aren't selling?
2: Yeah. But the bottom line is that they are, right? And I think it's also not only watered down, but it also, because there's a ton of people selling onesie twosies. So those people selling onesie twosies should not be selling whatsoever because they have no idea what they're doing. You don't know what the market's doing, how to really help your client to the best of your ability when you're only selling one or two houses a year. I think that's why we have such a bad rap that, you know, real estate agents make so much money. We make so much money because the barrier to entry is so, so easy. And because so many agents aren't doing it the way they should, they're not treating it like a career and a profession and, you know, learning to do the best job possible and and learning to use innovation and technology to the best of their clients' ability. Most agents aren't wanting to spend any money on their listing. And there's some wonderful agents out there. Don't get me wrong. I'm just talking about the ones that aren't really doing it as like a full time career, they're just kind of playing real estate.
1: What are some of the most common misconceptions you see people having when they're just becoming a new agent or before they're about to become a new agent? Or even just about real estate agents in general?
2: I think that the business is just going to come to you. They're just going to make so much money. I think that is a big deal. I mean, my first year, I sold 69 homes my first year in the industry. All of those were buyers. And I would stop what I was doing at any second and work with buyers no matter when it was. Four months before I even got my license, I followed somebody in the office and like, literally went on every listing appointment with him and went to the office every single day and just sort of was like, his little lemming, I followed him everywhere. It's a lot to learn. You think you're going to learn something from your real estate course and you don't learn anything from your real estate course. All the knowledge happens in the field but how do you get knowledge if you're not doing any business? (laughs) So it's kind of hard at first, Like unless you can figure out how to be innovative and different. In order for you to be known, you have to be seen and you have to be heard. So I believe that being visible and being seen and being heard is imperative in real estate.
1: What is the best way for a new agent to manage their personal cash flow and just the schedule of payments that they get? Some months, they might have a bunch of deals in the pipeline, they might close a bunch of deals in one month, but maybe the next month they don't close any because everything closed in the month before. So it tends to ebb and flow a lot. How do you manage as a new agent your cash flow? that's not the same as quite having a W-2?
2: I think that as an agent, you need to be willing to, number one, invest in yourself. There's been days, I mean, a lot of days in real estate where I made more money in a day than I made in a whole year as a teacher teaching school for six years. I think you need to be willing to invest in yourself. Real estate can be such a lucrative career. You can make a ton of money. You can have a ton of flexibility. It also can be very draining. I know a guy who bought one of those coffee carts, a big coffee cart. It was $350,000. So he spent $350,000 on a coffee cart to make $5 a coffee. Real estate agents, I think they need to set aside a marketing budget. They need to invest in good coaching and learn from somebody that can really teach them. And I think if they do that and they treat it like a career, I mean, you can make more money in real estate than being a doctor or an attorney or a lawyer or an accountant. There's so many great professions and those professions, it costs them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to get trained. And then it takes years and years and years, but with real estate, you can just get in, get your license with a few trainings and then expect to just like, oh, I'm going to make all this money. And that's just not the way that it works. So I think that agents should really invest in themselves, set aside a marketing budget, make sure that they're marketing on a regular basis themselves, get familiar with the area, learn how to utilize social media and video content to really, really reach the masses locally. So it appears that they're doing business, even if they're not, because they're new and just invest. I, mean, I hope that's answered it right, but I'm really, really passionate about people investing in themselves because that's the best way for you to get the knowledge and the exposure is by investing.
1: How do we define or measure success as a new real estate agent? Is it a certain number of deals? Is it transaction volume? How do we know if we've been successful as an agent or not?
2: I know a lot of people will say, I closed 12 deals my first year. And that's pretty good because the average agent sells three in a year. So I think that'd be good. Like one a month or two a month, you do two a month, you're just crushing it. I closed 69 my first year. I don't know even how I did that. Honestly, looking back, it was mostly survival. I've just gotten, went through a really bad divorce. I came home one day and my husband was having an affair and we had drained bank accounts. And I just left my full-time teaching job to stay at home and take care of my daughter who had gotten really, really sick. And next thing you know, we just bought in a brand new house and here I am with two little girls, a brand new house, empty bank accounts. And I was like, oh my gosh, I had to dive all in. And, you know, my reason why it was really important to do well, and that was to take care of my daughters. You have to have a really good reason to want to do well, right? So I think that helps. But I think that if you're doing, you know, 12 to 18 deals your first year, you're doing a really, really great job. Like that's just amazing. One a month. You know, if you're doing two a month, you're crushing it. I think it takes time to get to that point. Usually and you have to be willing to like give up a little bit, right? If you're willing to not be on the boat some weekends and maybe not watch your favorite Netflix show at night so that you can learn the skill to make the money.
1: How long is it from passing your test to getting that first deal usually? What do you see on average?
2: You know, I don't know. I mean, I have some students that look, I have one girl, her name is Lynette Jaswal, and she's just doing so good. Like, she made more money in a month than she made like her whole year prior as well. And she had like three deals under contract. Another new agent, Yasmin, she actually had like 10 deals closing in four months. And that's pretty great too, right? So I think that's very uncommon. I think in most cases, unless you have like a huge fear of influence or you're investing in marketing, like you're marketing yourself and you're showing up really heavy, strong online presence and you're doing it that way, I think that it might be a little bit easier, (laughs) right? To do well. But I think that's uncommon. I mean, if you're selling one home month, I think you should be really, really proud of yourself, you know, and feel like you're doing a good job. And then the next year would be to double that goal, at least double or triple it. I think it's much more easier once you get momentum to do better with the momentum of your past efforts. Sometimes my A slower start.
1: Let's assume somebody's brand new. They just passed their real estate test. What's the first step that they need to take?
2: Start creating video content, start creating content about your community. Like, be what I call, I actually have this famous trademark, the community market leader. Anybody thinks real estate, they need to thank you. Now, understand that perception is reality, even if you're not doing any business. And if you're out there talking about neighborhoods and doing local interviews of local professionals, and you're out there talking about what's happening, what's coming up in the community, or fun things to do, or best places to go for happy hour, or doing a market update, doing all these things, talking about real estate terms and what to expect when selling or buying trends in real estate. When you're doing that and you're creating content, people have the perception that you're doing business. So even though you're not, maybe you have never even sold a house before, when you do that, it's a really great way to ensure that you can start your foot in the door in real estate. So that's exactly what I'd recommend doing.
1: Why aren't more agents leveraging both the power of digital marketing and social media in their business?
2: Most agents are taught from their broker to do open houses or cold call or door knock or do just work on your sphere of influence or do pop buys like they're taught all these things that work, but they can never work on a massive scale. For you to think about selling 100 plus homes a year, it's really difficult to do that from a sphere of influence or from doing pop buys. You're only one person. It's not manageable. So in order to scale, you have to think about scaling by being in front of people in a massive level all the time. I think agents are afraid of it. The thought of doing video scares them to death. The thought of technology scares them to death. And they're just not taught to. Like they're not taught. That's what you do. And that's what you need to do. If you want to dominate your area and be seen by the masses, you absolutely need to be seen by the masses. Right. And you can do that on social media.
1: How do you manage all of those appointments if your digital marketing strategy works and you get hundreds of appointments? How do you handle that yourself?
2: Well, let's be real, Robert. It doesn't happen that way initially. Like you don't instantly all of a sudden have hundreds of appointments. But if you do this right, you will have hundreds of appointments, but you work your way up to it. So like when I first started, I think I hired an assistant within a year. Like I said, I closed 69 deals my first year. So on year two, I had hired an assistant and she did all the things for me that I couldn't do. So for example, like when everybody else was doing two page flyers, I was doing four page colored brochures and also putting like the CD on the sign with like 60 pictures on the CD. And she would do those things for me. So I made sure that I did things that made me stand out and be Different. So I looked around at what my competitors were doing, and I always wanted to make sure that I was doing it better, more innovative, and that it was just different than everyone else, so that I would stand out more. So I had her do things that I wasn't as good at so I could be having more FaceTime with people. So she'd make the flyers, input things in the MLS, do things like that. And so I could have more FaceTime. The year that I sold 169 properties, it was just myself, a transaction coordinator and a marketing assistant. And like, I would literally show up to an appointment and hand me the book and I'd roll. They give me a list of phone numbers to call on the way. I didn't do any of the day-to-day data entries or any of that kind of thing. I did face-to-face negotiations, requests for repairs. I had trainings for the marketing and understood what the marketing was. Then I had them do the marketing once I learned it. So that's kind of how I did it. And it kind of happens slowly.
1: There's a lot of talk that the industry is being disrupted right now from players like Zillow, Redfin, XP Realty, that are really just driving change and innovation each in their own way. How do you see these changes impacting the real estate market? Are the days of being a traditional real estate agent over, or are they at least numbered?
2: Well, the bottom line is, first of all, I'm with EXP Realty and I love it. EXP is absolutely making just massive changes right now. So they're the fastest growing real estate company around. So if you're interested in EXP, give me a call because we are absolutely building our brokerage across the country and we're teaching new agents how to really dominate their areas. But yes, I think that people with Zillow, I mean, Zillow is basically trying to put everyone out of business and they're using our marketing dollar. So people are paying Zillow for their own leads. So we're paying Zillow for marketing. So if you want leads from Zillow, we have to pay Zillow. Now Zillow is becoming their own real estate company, their own brokerage. They're working with buyers and sellers. And they actually just did this thing where they removed all of people's reviews and past sales on their site. So unless you're paying them, unless you're, it looks as though you aren't doing any business, aren't doing anything. And Zillow is the number one site that sellers and buyers are going to. Now, if you think that's not going to hurt some people, absolutely it is. The CEO, the president of Zillow has put multiple professions out of business by coming up and building it something like Zillow and then making the need for agents to kind of go away. So I do not think that we're going to be gone. But I do think that the strong will survive, right? Survival of the fittest agents that are just doing old school, traditional things. They aren't being innovative. They're not changing what they're doing. They're not adapting to technology. They don't have their unique competitive value add. I absolutely think that they're going to be in major trouble. So unless you're the type of agent that quite frankly is like me, very innovative and very different. I'm all over social media. I run targeted and ad campaigns to sellers in my area. They're seeing me constantly because people always still want their handheld. They want a person. And I'm just going to be talking about the, truth about Zillow, like what Zillow really is. Zillow is hiring people that couldn't make it in the industry on their own. And so therefore, they had to go work for Zillow or for Redfin because they were subpar agents.
1: I actually have my real estate license. And so through studying and being an investor, I've learned the difference between these two terms now. But for a long time prior to actually getting involved in real estate, I used two terms interchangeably and incorrectly, just like I hear many, many people doing. And those two terms are real estate agent and realtor. How are these two things different?
2: If you're a realtor, then you're a part of the National Association of Real Estate Agents. And if you're just an agent, you're not a part of the National Association of Realtors. So I had to be really careful, even though I'm a realtor and I'm a part of the National Association of Realtors, like you can't put realtor anywhere, but I'm a realtor, right? (laughs) So that's the difference.
1: Well, a lot of people are like, oh, I need to hire a realtor. And I'm like, well, is, is it really a realtor or is it just a real estate agent? Like you said, there are little pieces of things where like, you can't use realtor anywhere. So like, if you don't know necessarily the difference, it could potentially come back and bite you.
2: Yeah, I have my broker's license too. So even though I'm with EXP and I don't need to have my broker's license to have my own place, I still have my broker's license because, and that was very helpful. So, you know, there's agent, realtor, broker.
1: I think every realtor is an agent, but not every agent is a realtor, correct?
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: When you think about when you were just starting as an agent, what do you know now that if you had known back then would have exponentially increased your success or just gotten you there much faster?
2: I might sound a little conceited, but I just did so well. Like I said, my first year I sold 69 homes and I've sold well over 100 every year since except one year I only sold 12 and the market recovered. I lost all my REO accounts. But one of the things I can say that added to that success is just the fact that I was really always willing to be as unique as possible, as innovative as possible, and to adapt quickly, right? I pivoted quickly in any market. And those are the things that have really, really helped aid to my success as an agent. One thing I wish I have done more quickly is I wish I would have maybe probably like not let people abuse me so much. And I'm kind of a people person. I love making people happy. And I was that person that would, you know, answer the phone at midnight and you know answer that phone at Christmas Eve during Christmas Eve dinner. And I wish I wouldn't have done that. I learned that towards the last 10 years of my career. Like I really realized that I was a very unique agent and I offered something that no one else did in my area. Um, as far as the type of marketing that I do. And I position myself as the go-to authority in real estate. And so I didn't have to, like people would come to see me Monday through Friday. I make my last appointment at four o'clock. I didn't work weekends or nights. And, but it took 10 years to, (laughs) to get to that point. If that makes sense. I wish I would have did it sooner.
1: Krista, thank you for joining me on the show today. For those listening that are interested in learning more about you, where's the best place for them to go?
2: They can actually go to, it's kristamayshore.com slash the number two days live. So kristamayshore.com slash two days live. Once a month, I do a two-day training. It's 10 hours a day where it's full-on coaching on how to utilize innovative strategies, techniques, how to use digital marketing and social media and video to just dominate your profession. It's a $97 charge valued well over $5,000 for that jam-packed with unique strategy and then also tips and tricks step-by-step on how-to. So it'll be a huge, huge help for any agent, whether they're brand new or whether they're experienced.
1: I will put a link to that and Krista's other resources in the show notes below. So if you guys are interested in checking that out, you can click that there. Krista, thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me, Robert. This is awesome. I appreciate you. All
1: right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.
2: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investor's Podcast Network.